Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Our speaker today is Jim Wilson. He's a regular speaker. I think we all know him pretty well. Jim. October is my favorite month. I always like October. So autumn is my favorite season. So, so it's good to good to be here. Um, do people have any Dharma questions from uh, that they've been pondering over the last month or month and a half? No more than that. But years or this one month. If you've been pondering a question for years, we'd love to hear it. (laughs) Okay. How many people um, have a home altar? altar? And how many people um, have some kind of practice, formal practice of their home altar on a regular basis? Daily? Daily? Yeah. Just curious. I'd, I'd like to uh, talk a little about, little bit about uh, home altar practice, and I'm going to be very general because um, uh, different Buddhist traditions have uh, different specifics about the home altar practice. So I don't want to, um, you know, like give a specific recommendation that might interfere with your particular tradition. Like so. uh, but... Uh, for lay people in particular, uh, a home altar practice is a, a really excellent way of of, <clears throat> of practicing the Dharma. Like so, it's very um, it's aesthetically pleasing uh, to the individual. Like it's attractive, and it brings uh, uh, it's a way of uh, centering oneself every day and reminding oneself of the. Uh, orientation of one's practice and and sort of just checking in on a regular basis. You know, like it's um, a home altar is uh, very common. I would say, in fact, that it's standard in the Buddhist world. You know, like uh, no matter what Buddhist tradition you're talking about, you know, whether it's Vajrayana or Pure Land or Theravada, uh, home altar practices um, or a home altar presence. Um, is the norm. Uh, In fact, it would be very unusual in traditional Buddhist cultures for a lay person not to have uh, a home altar. Um, It's it's not only true in Buddhism, it's also true in like uh, Confucianism or Taoism. So like a a Confucian home altar would be for the purpose of ancestor veneration primarily. Like a Taoist home altar should be for the propitiation of certain deities. um, but it's not common in the West, like, and and it's interesting to to ponder why that is the case. You know, like why why is it so widespread um, in uh, non-Western spiritual traditions? And 
largely it is not the case in uh, Western spiritual traditions. Did, did you have a comment? Or a question. Uh, so maybe uh, for altar, maybe a small picture of Buddha or a uh-huh. small candle would be a, an altar or... I think it would qualify. <laughs> so, so I'm going to get into specifics like that, um, you know, um, in a bit. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. So, um, and uh, it, it's been my experience that when Western Buddhists first set up a home altar, there's a there's a kind of a reluctance. Or um, I know some people. Uh, <laughs> I had one student who sort of put it. In their kitchen cabinets, so like, so like, <laughs> and there, there, there's a, a a little bit of a reluctance and a certain sense of awkwardness, you know, like or a little bit of embarrassment. And I think that the unstated view in the West is that there is a separation of the secular and the sacred, and that when you put an altar in your home you're violating that unstated sort of agreement, that unstated premise, which is very strong in our culture. You know, like, so spirituality and religion is what you do at church, which is over there. You know, like, and the secular is what happens at home. And, um, and I mean, I'm, I'm sort of stating in an extreme, you know, extreme terms. You know, like, but uh, I, I remember reading an article once about um, uh, children whose parents had become extremely religious, right? The, and and how the children reacted to uh, their parents all of a sudden becoming uh, deeply religious. And it, it was interesting that one guy became very concerned about his mother because she put an altar in her home. It, it was a modest altar, you know, like, but it was a signal to him that his mother may be getting a little, you know, like... <laughs> you know, like uh, so... So uh, it's it's necessary to face that, you know, like if you do put a put a home altar in. There's also a sense it's like how are you going to explain this to your friends, you know, like who may not be part of your, you know, like uh, spiritual trip. Like so, uh, how are you going to? Uh, and in um, when I was in Korea and Japan, since um, since everybody had a, a home altar, there was no explanation required. You know, like I mean, so you're like, but but here it would be like, oh, that's my home altar, and and then your friend goes, what? You know, like, it's not, <laughs> like, well, why? You know, like, yeah. I just want to say, you say the West, but I think even within the West, there are cultures that, that lean more towards that than others. So if you go down to Mexico, that's right. Right, like you know, really religious tchotchkes all over the yeah, place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so. Maybe we're really talking about Protestantism, right? Yeah. As opposed to, <laughs> yeah, like, but, but, um, but in any case, it it, it is. Uh, um, I wanted to mention it because it is sort of a common, you know, like. Uh, um, Reaction, you know, like the people have, you know, when, like if a Dharma teacher, say a Tibetan teacher or a Pure Land teacher says, well, now I think it's time for you to set up a home altar and do a daily practice, you know, they're sort of like, eek. You know, like, <laughs> like uh, that, that's unusual in our, in, uh, in the United States. It's, it's not, it's not the norm, you know, like, uh, but it's important, it's important for us to remember that it, that for most of the world, it is the norm. 
You know, like the, that we're, you know, we're the exception about that. Separation of church and state, separation of the um, secular and the sacred is very uh, strong and important to us. You know, like, and the, the, <clears throat> that manifests in many uh, areas of our life. And uh, one of the things is, a, is it's rooted in the idea that um, it's rooted in our particular history in which there was uh, many centuries of violent religious conflict. You know, like, and so the, out of that historical heritage is uh, you want to keep religion sort of... Um, um, well, like we don't talk about religion. There's that, you remember, you know, the, the things that you don't talk about in polite company, you know, like sex, politics, and religion. You know, like, and because the uh, the unstated fear is that that will give rise to hostility, you know, like differences of opinion will give rise to hostility and violence. If you look at the history of Buddhism, that has um, uh, Dharma debate and Dharma discussion among different Buddhist groups and uh, between Buddhists and other spiritual traditions has been the norm throughout Buddhist history. In India, all the time. You know, like Nagarjuna debated his, you know, his views uh, with people. That, that was absolutely standard. They were public debates, public discussions. People, the audience would get involved. They would ask questions. Um, that same sense was carried to China where there were many, many public debates between Buddhists and Taoists, Buddhists and Confucians, or the three of them together, you know, like, um, and in Tibet as well. You know, like Japan also has a very long history of public discussion and debate uh, between different Buddhist schools. You know, like, um, so that idea that a disagreement among a religious points of view will erupt into violent confrontation is not part of the Buddhist heritage. You know, like, so people don't automatically assume that that, that, that will be the case. Uh, one of the burdens of our own history is that you know, like religion is volatile. Religion is a very volatile issue. It can really give rise to severe confrontation. And so we don't want to bring that into the foreground. And if you put an uh, altar in your home, that's what you're doing. You know, like, and, and so there's this... Um, um, it, it may make yourself and it may make some people you know uneasy. Like, um, do, does that make sense, what, I, what I'm saying? But nevertheless, I think it's a really good thing. <laughs> Being uneasy isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know? like, so, um, and uh, the reason I think, there's a number of reasons why I think the home altar practice uh, as a form of practice is a really wonderful thing. Uh, one is is precisely that it does break down the barriers between the secular and the sacred. I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I like uh, so, um, if uh, all things have Buddha nature, so um, not not just the temple. Yeah. Right. So, um, and it also um, a home altar practice reminds us of <coughs> of the direction we want to take in our life. You know, like as we move, as we move through our day, there are many distractions, ups and downs in our lives. Um, we we forget about the teachings, um, and having a home altar is uh, a way of uh, um, coming back to center. You know, like 
Um, many people begin their day with a home altar practice, and it's sort of just like going, you know, like, yes, this is the direction I want to move. I want to remember this. You know, like, I want to keep this in mind. You know, like, uh, it cultivates that awareness on a regular basis. And it reminds us of the presence of the uh, deathless and the unborn. That's pretty neat. Like, so that's the, the ultimate teaching of the Buddha, is you know, to, to teach the deathless and the unborn. Now, you're not going to be reminded about that on television. <laughs> so, or in the newspaper. <laughs> Or at work, <laughs> like so, like, or uh, in the doctor's office, unless he happens to give you, a, you know, <laughs> some important news. <laughs> but but so you know, checking in, checking in with this, you know, it's like, oh yes, you know, like there is there is the presence of the transcendent. I call it the presence of eternity. There is. Um, yeah, yeah, did you have a question? I'd like you just to describe the deathless and unborn. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to describe the deathless and the unborn? <laughs> sure. Uh, the deathless and the unborn is uh, <clears throat> has uh, two aspects that I would quickly you know, <laughs> name. One is non-grasping, non-clinging. The, 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 the non-graspable nature of all existing things is deathless and unborn. That's, that is their true nature. The true nature of all things is like space, ungraspable and limitless. You know, like, and uh, the second uh, aspect would be peace. So, so the Buddha often said, Nirvana is peace. Like so, so the the deathless and the unborn. Uh, you, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, uh, I can prove it to you. So when you um, uh, hear the the sound of a bell. You know, so the sound of the bell arises and then the sound of the bell comes to an end. That state of mind that you have when the bell ceases, that is the mind of non-grasping. Okay. And that is the mind of peace. See? It's that, that mind, that specific mind, is the awareness of the deathless and the unborn. That's it. You do, so that's what I mean that you don't have to take my word for it. That's a, a little glimpse of the of the deathless, the unborn, of uh, peace, nirvana, cessation of grasping, cessation of clinging, and the cessation of suffering. Um, is, is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, one of the things that I want to point out about. Um, uh, the Dharma in this context is, um, uh, uh, from a philosophical point of view, the Dharma, um, the symbols like that are on the altar are uh, a self-referential display of this ultimate nature. And so, well, what, what does he mean by that? Like, so, uh, what I mean is that the the uh, the ultimate nature uh, of all existing things is not just pointed to by the Dharma; it is also displayed by the Dharma. 
So, so the metaphor that is often used in uh, Buddhist um, teachings is that the Dharma is a finger pointing at the moon. So don't get attached to the finger. So, but what I'm suggesting is that the Dharma is both the finger and the moon simultaneously. See, So in terms of the Buddhist discourses, for example, uh, the, su- the Buddhist sutras, the Dharma, uh, I will give an example to clarify. Uh, when the Dharma, uh, when a sutra t- talks about dependent origination, that very statement regarding dependent origination is itself a dependently originated phenomenon. So it speaks of that reality and simultaneously is that reality. In other words, you don't have to go anywhere else than that statement to comprehend what the Dharma is getting at. Or many of you know the Heart Sutra. There's a line in the Heart Sutra. All things are marked by emptiness. That statement itself is a thing marked by emptiness. It's not that emptiness is over there. So the very statement is luminous with emptiness. So so the Dharma uh, uh, Dharma simultaneously speaks about the deathless, the unborn, the presence of eternity, and is a presentation of that. Now, all things are marked by emptiness. That is true. Rocks, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the car going down the streets. But not all things speak about the transcendent and this luminous presence. That's the difference. And that's what makes the Dharma so valuable. It isn't only marked by emptiness, the Dharma is aware that it's marked by emptiness. So that's that's what makes the Dharma valuable, precious, unprecedented, wonderful. In terms of our home altar practice, the symbols that are on the altar are symbols of the presence of the deathless and the unborn. Um, so this, the particular symbols vary from tradition to tradition. That's not important. You know, like. But what they symbolize is not something that is somewhere else. It is present in the very altar itself. Okay. So that's the point. You know, like, so the altar can function. That's why the altar can remind us of the presence of eternity. It functions as a gate, as a gateway. Now, the danger of an altar is that people tend to fetishize religious objects. You know, like, so that's the danger. You know, like, that's the, uh, and that is that my altar is better than yours. You know, like, <laughs> more effective. You know, like uh, neater, niftier, more holy, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So when you start when you start fetishizing the altar, uh, uh, fetishizing the altar means the mind of clinging arises. 
you know, like, and so that, you know, um, I occasionally on the internet forums see intense arguments over what should be on an altar and what should not be an altar. It's hysterically funny, but sorry. <laughs> so, you know, like, whether you should put flowers on the altar or not, whether you should put fruit on the altar or not, whether you should put this on the altar or not. I mean, it's, it's you know, like, that, that kind of mind, that's what I call fetishizing the altar, you know, like, turning it into a kind of a magical talisman, you know, like, what that does is it actually closes the gate on the transcendent because then you start thinking that this particular object is marked by emptiness, the holy, the transcendent. Other things are not. You know, like, well, so that's, you know, like that's, like I say, that's the danger of 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 a home altar practice, you know, like uh, the people start getting contentious about about their altar. You know, like so, if you see that kind of mind arising about your home altar, my suggestion is to change it immediately. <laughs> Remove something or add something. You know, like sh- just shake shake that. You know, like so. Yeah. Can can be a power center. I mean, um, so in like in Korea, you know, like there was very definitely the view that the, that in some sense the ancestors were present. You know, like at the ancestral altar. You know, like um, that that it, you weren't just perfunctorily um, honoring your ancestors. They were they were in some sense nourished by the altar, you know, like, and therefore present. Uh, um, in uh, Taoist altars, there's there's definitely the feeling that the deities are um, drawn, you know, like. So um, I know when I was uh, um, in training to be a, um, uh, for Buddhist ceremonial, you know, like, uh, it was explained to me that the reason you snuff the candles, that you don't blow the candles out, that you snuff the candles out, is that um, certain uh, devas are drawn to the altar, and if you blow the candle, the flame will go sideways and singe them. You know, like so, there's a you know, like th- that kind of, uh, and I don't dismiss that out of hand. You know, like that, um, that there that there are other realms uh, of uh, of living beings that are the that, um, that interact. You know, with our realm. Um, I mean, I'm just speaking personally that I don't dismiss that. But even if all of that is bracketed and put aside, the um, the the altar is charged in the sense that it reminds us effectively of, uh, like I say, the deathless and the unborn. Not everything is equally effective at communicating 
the transcendent. You know, like, even though everything in existence is marked by the transcendent, not everything is equally lucid at uh, presenting the transcendent. You know, like, and, and, and that's the difference. You know, like, so, so if I read a book about gardening, um, everything that I... Um, uh, the book, the garden, the flowers... The seeds, the plants, all of them are uh, marked by emptiness, transcendent. All of them are luminously present with that reality. But I have to make an effort. I have to infer it. I am not assisted by this book in becoming aware of that. Like um, if I read, um, uh, say, the Heart Sutra or um, um, any one of a or the Metta Sutta. You know, like uh, both of those are re- really nice one-page short texts, which speak directly to the presence of uh, the transcendent. You know, like, and so I'm not. I am assisted by that, uh, by those works. And oh yes, that's right. You know, like uh, uh, there it is. You know, like uh, I'm, I am reminded. I am helped. You know, like, and the same is true with the home altar. You know, like uh, the the reading of discourses and the the contemplative reading of discourses helps the mind. Uh, the uh, practice of meditation uh, brings the body into the practice so that the body is aware of the presence of the deathless. You know, like the altar brings the sensorium into the practice. So the the senses um, need to be incorporated into the practice uh, rather than negated from the practice. So when I say the senses are brought in, um, <clears throat> the the visual sense, the um, the sense of smell through incense, you know, like the sense of hearing, say, through a bell, you know, like um, uh, all of those. Um, the sensorium is normally very diffuse, you know, like one of the purposes of an altar is to bring the energy of the senses into focus, and then so that so that the sensorium can also participate in the practice. You know, like not not just the mind, not just the body, but the senses themselves. You know, like, um, is that responsive to your question? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any question that. I'm 
began to realize that the feather duster took on some of these vibrations because it was like it was glowing, not in a visual way, but it had this kind of energy. And so I had to get rid of it. I had to pick it up in my room and put it in the closet because it was disturbing to me. And that's it's okay to I think it's okay to acknowledge that those, those kind of vibrations we really accept that they are these vibrations are con are conditioned themselves. You know, the, the vibrations are conditioned. So if you realize that they they are actually a temporary thing, you can be okay with it. I, I'm comfortable with it. You know, Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, so, um, let's see. The, the home altar um, uh, uh, practice, um, the daily practice of the home altar can be very simple. Um, like uh, uh, you asked about, you know, would a picture of the Buddha and a candle be a home altar? Absolutely, it could be a home altar. You know, like there's... Uh, um, some people's home altars are, are uh, very simple, you know, like a small statue, you know, like um, or a, a picture, um, and uh, and the ceremony can be very uh, very simple as well. Um, <clears throat> but the basic elements of a of a Buddhist home altar would be um, a statue. Um, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha is um, a fave. <laughs> and, uh, but a lot of people have uh, b uh, bodhisattvas of, uh, of various kinds. Where, uh, the, the statue should be attractive to you. you know, it should be pleasing to you. Like it should be something that that you enjoy uh, being uh, being around, and and that's the key. You know, like. Uh, and uh, many statues, many uh, altars have more than one statue. I have a Shakyamuni Buddha in the middle, and then on each side I have uh, Kuan Yin and Ho Tai. You know, like so. Um, the, and candles, um, incense, and incense holder. So those are the three ba three basic elements: uh, a statue or a picture, candles, incense. You know, like all the altars of all the traditions I know have that. You know, like. Have that, those elements might be a tanka in a Buddhist tradition, like a, a painting instead of a statue, but some kind of image, which incidentally brings up a question for us Westerners. <laughs> so, like, uh, isn't it? Uh, doesn't ultimate nature have no image? Like, so how how can the image of you know like uh, take form? You know, like, and uh, I have two responses to that. One is that the human mind generates images for every single concept that appears, or more accurately, every single concept arises out of an image context. It's, it's impossible to avoid image. Better to make it conscious than to have it be unconscious. Most people are not aware of the image layer of their consciousness until they come across an image of a concept which conflicts with the subconscious image that they hold. So, uh, here's an example. When uh, back in the uh, civil rights movement days, when I was quite young, 
people uh, um, first started producing uh, Christmas cards of uh, a less than blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. You have no idea how people react to that at first. It was really intense. Like it was very, um, very disturbing to many people. You know, like, um, and uh, and the reason was is because they had this very strong subconscious image of what Jesus looked like. You know, like I mean, actually, we have no idea what he looked like, but just, you know, I mean, we have a rough idea. You know, like a statistical idea. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, but whatever. <laughs> so, you know, like. Every every idea that we have has an image component to it, and you you can access this if you through a, through a meditative process. You know, like um, it's out of awareness of the geography of mind that Buddhism has generated these images of compassion. That's that, and it takes our understanding deeper into the mind by having an image. You know, like um, the other the other aspect is a little more rarefied. Is a God, returning to the Heart Sutra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Uh, so, so all things are marked by ultimate nature. All things are marked by Buddha nature, by the presence of eternity. So there's no, uh, so there's no conflict there. Though there may be a psychological conflict depending on our, how strong our heritage is uh, regarding this point. If if there is a strong conflict, I would go with that. I wouldn't fight that. Instead of using an image, I would put on the altar a symbol. You know, like the eight-spoked wheel is a very good one you know, for Westerners in particular. You know, like, um, it's abstract enough that it, it won't offend that heritage. You know, like the, I mean, occasionally I do run into this. You know, like people are very, very reluctant to put an image on a, on a home altar. There are excellent um, uh, symbols to substitute for that within uh, the Buddha Dharma. The eight-spoked wheel, very good. It symbolizes the path, symbolizes you know, like all the aspects of our practice in, in, in contained in a very uh, condensed and easily observable form. In some, uh, I've seen on some Western Buddhist altars footprints, you know, uh, and uh, which is another symbol of the path, you know. Like, uh, so I think that's actually there's something charming about that, you know. Like, and and so so once again, it needs to be something that is meaningful to you and responsive to you and doesn't generate psychological conflict. You know, like you, you don't want to be at war with yourself when you go to the home altar. You know, like about like. Uh, um, so some kind of symbol, candles, incense. Then the different traditions add on, add on to this. You know, like a very, very common, of course, is a bell. A bell to announce the beginning. You know, like announce the closing of uh, of going to the home altar. Um, uh, bowls of water, flowers, mandalas, fruit. Um, you know, like uh, uh, if you have a sense of style, you can really, you know, like uh, <laughs> go with this. You know, like it can be for very, very simple, very, very uh, non-intrusive, or it can be uh, very elaborate. You know, like as you choose. You know, like, and then from for a Buddhist, the central element um, is taking refuge. You know, so, say you have a very simple altar, uh, eight-spoke wheel. It's uh, <clears throat> come. 
light the candle, light the incense, place in the altar. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Bow. That's a full altar practice. Taking refuge is the uh, the core and the heart of the Dharma. You know, like um, that's that's what opens the Dharma to you is simply taking refuge. That would be sufficient. In fact, I know many people who are very busy, not just here, but like in Korea, Thailand, you know, like in the morning, they go to their altar, they may change the flowers, change the water, whatever, you know, additional elements, light the incense, they take refuge. That's it. That's their ceremony. You know, like, so so it's, it's very traditional. You know, like, but, but that has to be there. You know, like that's that's necessary. The taking refuge. Everything else is an add-on. <laughs> like everything else, you know, becomes sort of specific to a particular Buddhist tradition. You know, like or uh, or heritage. You know, like. But when you take refuge, you align yourself with the energy of millennia of practitioners. So it's really a wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful. You know, like, and it's enough to remind you of the direction you want to go in your life. It's enough to remind you that, oh yes, this, this is how I want to live my life, you know, like uh, in, in, terms, in terms of the Buddhist teachings and in terms of the Dharma. Right? So there are, are many wonderful contemplations to, um, that Buddhism has generated. Um, and I'll just share with you my own uh, home altar practice. Um, I, be, I begin with a, an expression of gratitude um, for um, another day, another opportunity to uh, practice the Dharma and deepen my understanding. As, uh, I change the water. So I'll back up. I change the water on the altar first, and uh, I uh, um, feed the, uh, the water to the hungry ghosts. So, then uh, add the water, light the candle, light the incense, expression of gratitude, for um, another day and another opportunity. And then I take refuge. No, refuge. Then there's uh, um, the contemplations for everyone. This comes from uh, the Book of Fives. So that um, <coughs> um, all being, um, I'm of nature, I'm of nature to go old, I'm of nature to become ill, I'm of nature to die, I must be separated from all that is dear to me. I am the heir of my own deeds. And then I add a sixth one to those five. I am of a nature to become enlightened. Like so. And then uh, it concludes, that contemplation concludes with, it is not only I who, are, um, who will grow old, all will grow old. So like, it is not only I who will become ill, all will become ill. It is not only I who am heir to my own deeds, all are heirs to their own deeds. It is not only I who will become enlightened, all beings will become enlightened. So that's the the Buddha called these the contemplations for everyone. You know, like so, then there's a contemplation on my good fortune. You know, like so, um, my good fortune in having a rare human birth, my good fortune in having good parents, my good fortune at living in a time and place of relative peace and prosperity, my good fortune that I am able to encounter the Dharma in this life. All of that is very rare. You know, so it reminds me. You know, like. Then um, I do um, uh, 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 
every day I do some reading in the Dharma. So my primary meditative practice is contemplative reading. So um, that I, t- I take maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, and do some uh, some Dharma reading. And then there's a forgiveness prayer, you know, whatever harmful, negative, or destructive deeds I have done through body, speech, or mind, intentionally or unintentionally, I do hereby repent of those deeds. Whatever harmful, negative, or destructive deeds have been done to me, intentionally or unintentionally, I do hereby forgive those deeds. Then there's the Bodhisattva vows. Then I transfer whatever merit I've generated from these uh, these contemplations to all sentient beings. Put out the candle. And I enter my day. (laughs) So if if you're not... um, uh, affiliated with any specific group uh, and you want to do a home altar practice, my recommendation is to keep it very, very simple. Start simple. You can always add on you know, like that, um, as, as your uh, practice deepens. Just the, the three refuges, that is sufficient. You know, like, and, and that will be a wonderful way of stabilizing your practice. You know, like, uh, the, the benefits are, are enormous. So um, I hope we can all do that and uh, quickly attain uh, to a realization of the presence of the deathless on un- unborn and save all sentient beings from suffering. I do. I I, I want to make one uh, quick announcement. Um, on the I've been <coughs> contacted by a number of people regarding. Uh, my teaching, uh, particularly of what are called the sutra salons. And um, uh, back in July, I had uh, some serious health problems, and I had to go through uh, two um, surgeries. And I'm no longer able to um, host those salons. You know, like, so um, I, I wanted to communicate that so that the people understand. I'm going to get that changed on the GBF site. But what I have done is created an online sutra salon. <laughs> you know, like a, a, a sutra salon online forum. You know, like, so um, it's a pale substitute to my you know, like, presence here. But, but if, if people are interested, you, know, like, uh, uh, you can contact me, and, uh, and I'll be happy to send you an invitation to the uh, uh, sutra salon online forum. Thank you. Talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. Is that a transcript or is that audio? Uh, it's audio, MP3 files. Thank you. Let's not forget the Donable. I suggest a $5 donation, more or less, in any situation. Will you lead us in I'll ask Jim to lead us now. Okay. Everybody's standing up. <laughs> you can sit, 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 sit. <laughs> May all sentient existence be well and happy. May all sentient existence be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. 
May good fortune fill all the days of all the lives of all sentient existence. May all sentient existence dwell forever in the limitless realm of the ever-present peaceful heart and serene mind. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.